Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 155. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website on thetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's Prize is a wonderful book and stationery bundle sponsored by Shaw House, a striking Elizabethan manor house built in 1581 and located in Berkshire, England. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of May, I'll be chatting to Emma Louisa Cahill Marron about Catherine of Aragon. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the life and legacy of Thomas Cranmer is Professor Susan Wabuda. Susan Wabuda is Professor of History at Fordham University in New York, She specialises in the history of early modern Britain and especially the political, cultural and ecclesiastical history of the British Isles from the late 15th to the early 17th centuries. She has written on bishops, sermons, heretics, martyrs and women who sold wine. Susan's published Thomas Cranmer, 2017, Preaching During the English Reformation, 2002 and also numerous articles and essays on a variety of aspects concerning the Reformation in England. Most recently, she co-edited The Cambridge Connection in Tudor England, Humanism, Reform, Rhetoric, Politics, which was published by Brill at the end of 2021. She's currently engaged on a biography of Hugh Latimer. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
welcome to Talking Tutors, Susan. How are you? Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind invitation. It's, it's lovely to be with you today. Wonderful. And I suppose a really great place to begin is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. I am Dr. Susan Wabuda. I am professor of history at Fordham University in New York. I received my doctorate from the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom, and I am the author of two books and numerous articles and essays about the history of the Reformation in England. Wonderful. And and the subject of today's episode is Thomas Cranmer, a man I think you know very well. So when did you become interested in Cranmer's story? Thank you. That's that's an interesting question. It's difficult to answer because I really don't remember the first time that I ever heard Thomas Cranmer's words. And that's probably because his words have been so much of the of the culture of even Connecticut, where I grew up here in the United States, but probably as a person, as an individual, like many members of my generation, I was impressed when I watched that wonderful BBC uh, series in the early 1970s, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which were broadcast in, in the United States and, and it repeated. And um, that's the, the edition with Keith Michelle playing Henry. And there was that beautiful sensitive performance by the late Bernard Hepton, who really made Cranmer out to be a, a sympathetic character, very meek, very frightened actually, through most of the, of the time he was on the screen. So probably um, that was the first time I really became aware of Cranmer as a person. But I have to say that I think most people still do not know his name, even while they are worshiping with the Book of Common Prayer and uh, its various editions in, in various denominations. I don't think they knew who he was. Tell us a little bit about Cranmer's family and his early life. Well, thank you. You know, we know surprisingly, a surprising lot. There's a great deal that we know about Cranmer's family. He he came from a gentry family. He was born in uh, on July 2nd, 1489 in Aslockton, which is a village in Nottinghamshire. And his family was gentle, but I don't think they had when he was growing up a great deal of money. They had background, but no money. They had a, a family legacy that they told themselves that they were descended from some of the people who had come over in the Norman invasion. So they considered themselves Norman French. When I started working on this, I thought that was outlandish. But then as I got more into it, I realized that many of the religious houses in that part of Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire had indeed been planted in the century or so following the Norman invasion. And it was quite possible that Cranmer's family came over then. So they always considered themselves part of the leading members of the society. I think Cranmer believed that he had the right to direct others because uh, by virtue of the fact that he was a gentleman, but they had no real money and no real standing locally. His father also named Thomas Cranmer married uh, a local gentlewoman, Agnes Hatfield, and they had nine children. Cranmer was the middle son, and he, like Hugh Latimer, had six sisters, but they just didn't have much of a horizon at all. In fact, Cranmer once wrote Thomas Cromwell to say that his family had been disadvantaged by terrible problems in the 15th century, legal problems, violence, and so I think his family was quite eclipsed. And then his father died in 1501 when Cranmer was not yet 11. And I think that made his family even more vulnerable. And somehow his mother, Agnes Hatfield, I don't know how she carried things through. I wish I knew a lot more about her. She probably provided for the, the tomb slab in Watton Church. As Slockton is so minor, 
It doesn't even have its own parish church. Next door is Watton. There are two villages on either side of the river, Smite. Hammer's father is portrayed with his purse at his waist, and it's a very country sort of style thing. But she paid for that somehow, and then she paid for her two younger sons to go to Cambridge. I don't know how she did it. Cranmer could say that his education was provided for by his mother. And many, many humanists could say that and did say it. And here we have a case of Agnes Hatfield really rising to the crisis that uh, life had handed her. Fascinating. We don't often hear about the early life of Cranmer. We kind of pick him up as he comes into the story of Henry, of course. So I imagine that a lot of people that are listening have, of course, heard of the King's Great Matter, the, you know, the saga that took up a lot of the, the middle to late 1520s. So when does Cranmer first come to Henry VIII's attention and what role does he play in this situation? Well, thank you. I've been wrestling with how to bring the, the whole story together. Um, because it, it could go long, but um, it, but I think the the best way to think about it is that Cranmer was one of the idea men that Henry needed to solve the the stalemate of his endeavor to invalidate his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and Cranmer was not alone in this. Cambridge provided Henry with a number of idea men who solved the problem of Henry's marriage, marital woes, the succession, the creation of an English church. There there were a group of them. And in addition to Cranmer, there was Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester, who was master of Trinity Hall, and Edward Fox, who later became Bishop of Hereford. And they were already in Henry's service when Cranmer came to their attention. They all happened to be in the same place. They were escaping from the plague and they were staying in a house that they all knew. Somebody who was the lady who ran the house was probably a distant relative of Cranmer's mother, Agnes Hatfield. And over dinner, the story goes, Cranmer told Gardner and Fox, that they had been wasting their time in going through the papal courts to try to obtain an outcome that was favorable to the king. And this was just after the 1529 disaster of the hearing that took place at Blackfriars and it collapsed. The cardinals made a flimsy excuse. And so Henry was publicly humiliated and things looked very bleak for his efforts to establish a new marriage. And Cranmer suggested, first of all, you don't have to go through the papal courts. And what you should do is you should open up the question of the validity of, of the king's marriage to Catherine of Aragon to theologians at universities. And this had not been done. And it had not been done because the people in charge of Henry's efforts to invalidate his marriage to Catherine, Cardinal Wolsey and John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, had tightly controlled the the endeavor to figure out how to address Henry's questions about the validity of his marriage to Catherine. And Cranmer couldn't have known at this stage what Henry actually wanted, but he made this suggestion. Um, We're not certain whether or not Gardner liked it, but Fox took it straight to the king and Henry liked it. And so he called for Cranmer and that meant that Cranmer left Cambridge. He had been at Cambridge for a number of years. He had been lecturing on the Bible. He had been um, living at Jesus College, Cambridge, and he gave all that up and join the court. But again, he couldn't be certain at the beginning what Henry actually wanted. Maybe Henry merely wanted to have his conscience soothed uh, if everybody said his marriage to Catherine was valid. But Henry sent him to Anne Boleyn's father's household. And there he met Thomas Boleyn and he met Anne. And then suddenly what Henry wanted became clear. And quite quickly, Cranmer decided that he was going to throw in his lot with the Boleyns and uh, support Henry's effort to establish a new marriage with Anne. 
Yes, and we're going to fast forward a little bit because there's so much I want to ask you about Cranmer's life. So in 1533, Thomas Cranmer was made Archbishop of Canterbury. So how did this appointment come about? This was unexpected from his perspective. He rose rapidly in Henry's service and he had been sent to as ambassador to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. This was an important appointment because Charles was Catherine of Aragon's nephew. And Charles had been the chief stumbling block that had prevented the Pope Clement VII from issuing any determination about the validity of Henry's marriage to Catherine. In the end, Clement, years later, found for Catherine. But what Cranmer was supposed to do at Charles's court was he was supposed to present Henry's case in the best possible way and try to persuade people that Henry had a real case, that his marriage to Catherine had been invalid from the beginning because Catherine had been briefly married to Henry's elder brother, Arthur, who had died in 1502. And the fact that they had been married had contaminated her subsequent marriage to Henry. And so Cranmer was there to present the best case possible. In the meanwhile, things in England at home rapidly changed. One of the domestic stumbling blocks to Henry's solution of his marital difficulties was the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham. And Warham had always had misgivings from the beginning about the validity of Henry's marriage, but he was very concerned that what Henry was doing to force uh, the church into accepting a new marriage was going to undermine the privileges of the church. He was going to challenge the papacy. He was going to challenge existing church privileges. He was going to undermine the position of the clergy. And so Warham worked very hard to prevent Henry from doing any of these things. And then in August 1532, he died. And that meant that Anne Boleyn and Henry could now begin to pursue their own uh, desires. Uh, Henry ennobled Anne. He took her on a state visit to the French king, Francis I. All of that went very well. And when they left the French court, they began to cohabitate for the first time. And soon Anne discovered that she was going to have a baby. And it was desperately important to make sure that that baby was born in a legitimate union. And so Henry recalled Cranmer from Charles's court, and then they had to push an enormous amount of paperwork to persuade the Pope that this rather dodgy cleric uh, diplomat should be um, raised up to the uh, throne of St. Augustine. And uh, somehow all of that was achieved. And Cranmer became Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533. And then he began to push the paperwork to nullify Henry's marriage to Catherine and to therefore acknowledge that uh, the existing marriage with Anne was legitimate. And in later in the summer, he crowned Anne Boleyn queen at Westminster Abbey when she was quite obviously pregnant. Amazing moment. What I'd give to see that, Susan. It, it must have been superb. And I, I couldn't write about it in the book, but the crown that was used was really the king's crown, the open work crown that implied that England was an empire. And she was given a better coronation than was Catherine when Catherine was crowned with Henry in 1509. So this was this was a really a stunning statement. And the banquet afterward, all of the members of the nobility sitting at their feet and dining alone, Henry invisible in a private closet uh, and the Archbishop of Canterbury off to the side. It must have been, well, a frightening moment too for a lot of people. So Thomas More didn't come to attend and it was divisive in a lot of ways. 
Absolutely. And of course, there's another very prominent Thomas who is rising in power alongside Cranmer, and that is, of course, Thomas Cromwell. So what was Cranmer's relationship like with Cromwell and how did they work together in the 1530s to advance religious reform in England? I like uh, your reference to the Thomases because Hilary Mantel on her stage play made fun of everybody was named Thomas. And um, it, it really it gets complicated Thomas Cromwell had risen up in the service of uh, Cardinal Thomas. Thomas. Yes, there is all. Well, there's so many wonderful Thomases. There's the Doubting Thomas of the Apostle, and and then there's Thomas Beckett. They they had many choices. I think our Cranmer was named after um, the Apostle, or is this a translation of, of one of them? But it's such a common name. Everybody, everybody loved the name. Thomas Cromwell was a very interesting person, rose up from a humble background, knew how to climb, was of a legal mind, had traveled on the continent, had fought in wars. When he went to Italy, he not only read Holy Scripture, but I think he memorized Holy Scripture as he went along. He had a wonderful bureaucratic sense. He was, in fact, a bureaucratic genius. Hilary Mantel depended a lot on the writings of um, Professor Sir Geoffrey Elton, G.R. Elton, and the scope of Cromwell's imagination in making new structures for uh, administrative purposes in creating government was really unmatched at the time for England. And so following Wolsey's death, which occurred in 1530, if I remember correctly, he managed to gain, again, the king's service, proved his worth, and was one of the rising new men who would be necessary to especially create the legislation necessary to bring about Henry's supremacy over the English church. Sometimes I hear people say Henry made himself uh, supreme head of the English church. Oh no, it was all parliamentary achievement, legislation culminating in 1534, a series of laws that uh, made Henry supreme head of the English church and intensified his powers as king. And Cromwell thought was the architect of much of this. And he was essential. Now, I don't think, however, that he and Cranmer always saw eye to eye. Uh, there were some things that they wanted to do. They wanted to move England diplomatically away from the Holy Roman Emperor and toward the emerging a Lutheran alliance that we know as the Schmalkaldic League. And uh, that was a coalition of Lutheran princes and city-states. And it was a challenger to the power of the Holy Roman Emperor. But in order to join that, you had to accept Lutheran points of view. Now, Cranmer probably was Lutheran. Cromwell was too. But Henry did not want doctrinal changes. And so Henry, in this case, was not at all in favor of what was happening. But also, Cranmer and Cromwell did not see eye to eye. Cromwell was the more inventive administratively than Cranmer ever could be. And he was given more and more responsibilities by the king to the point where Henry decided that Cromwell would be more effectual than Cranmer. Cranmer only controlled the southern province of Canterbury of the church. There's a northern province, the province of York. That's where Wolsey was archbishop. And in order to treat England as one entity in terms of ruling the English church, he needed somebody to be over both. And so he gave that responsibility to Cromwell. And that meant that Cromwell outranked Cranmer. I don't think it was a happy relationship for Cranmer in a lot of ways. And also some of the properties that had always belonged to the archbishops of Canterbury were given to Cromwell. So Cranmer had to swallow 
swallowed down a lot of resentment. And he had to cede a lot of responsibility to Cromwell in a lot of ways. And also, Cromwell was responsible, really, for the destruction of Anne Boleyn. And um, the historian of the Schmalkaldic League has made the point that Cromwell needed Anne Boleyn, and he destroyed her. He needed her, but he destroyed her. And once Anne Boleyn was executed in 1536, the whole reason that Cranmer had been made Archbishop of Canterbury disappeared and never came back in the same way. Anne Boleyn's reformation was destroyed. The opportunities that she would have encouraged were lost. And Cromwell was responsible for that loss. And so I don't think Cranmer was that sorry when Cromwell also was executed in 1540, except it made him much more vulnerable. Yes. And let's talk a little bit about Cranmer, the man. What qualities did he possess that allowed him to successfully master this shifting political landscape and all the turmoil, I suppose, of the, the latter part of Henry VIII's reign and then the reign of Edward VI as well and, and help him build a new English church? This is very difficult. We're very uh, fortunate that we have accounts of his life that were written by William Morris, his man of business, who knew him very well. Uh, the whole Morris family were attached to Cranmer in various capacities, and, and they were strong evangelical. They were Protestants. And Cranmer was enormously discreet. He did not challenge people overtly. Sometimes he retreated to the privacy of his household and wept because of the way things were going, that he couldn't change. He couldn't rescue. He couldn't. He, he, he couldn't. Uh, it was very difficult. He also was a man of his generation at Cambridge. At Cambridge, um, they'd had quite a bit of experience from the time they were undergraduates in debates, and they learned how to debate both sides of a question. And so, therefore, he was very supple in his understanding of both sides of questions and could argue either side quite well. And there was initially no reason to adhere to one particular strand of thinking to the exclusion of everything else. His generation didn't necessarily privilege hard, um, fixed positions. That didn't begin to change until John Calvin began to argue that you, you had to choose and then if, if God told you what you needed to do, you needed to do it even if you died. And if people wobbled, that was weakness. Well, Cranmer's whole generation, they saw no problem with a bit of wobble. And so we now have a word to describe them. And that word is Nicodemite. It comes from the figure in the New Testament of Nicodemus, who uh, came to Jesus at night. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he asked Jesus who he was and what he was doing. And Jesus told him the whole story of his life, exactly what to expect, including the resurrection. And Nicodemus occasionally stood up publicly, but didn't do a great deal of it. But he did help bury Jesus' body after the crucifixion. So he was a worthy man, but he wasn't overtly out and about and standing up and shouting. Calvin hated Nicodemism, and he thought that anybody who didn't get up and shout was going down the wrong route. Cranmer, again, he had this flexibility to adapt uh, without necessarily impugning his own integrity, mainly. But uh, it, since there was so many challenges to his authority, so many uh, difficult problems to unravel. Every time Henry VIII needed a new solution to his marital difficulties, Cranmer had to work the miracle of pushing the paperwork to make everything legitimate. It, he had an impossible role to play. And so he had to be discreet. He had to be careful. He had to be private. He couldn't be public in what he really felt because his enemies would have killed him. 
hugely challenging position he was in, goodness. And during the research of your wonderful biography of, of Thomas Cranmer, so anyone that's listening, Susan has written a fantastic biography. Please go on and have a read of it. What did you find out about, for example, his favourite pastimes or who his you know closest buddies were or who were the women that he fell in love with? This is a very interesting question and actually risked his career and reputation for. Well, Cranmer actually was a lot of fun in a lot of ways. He loved to hunt. He was an active hunter. In fact, his father, before his father died, when Cranmer was almost 11, had taught him how to ride the most difficult horses. Cranmer was not a coward. He, maybe he didn't challenge Henry VIII or Cromwell, but he, the members of his household knew that he could, uh, he did not fear to ride the fiercest horse in his stable. So uh, he loved to hunt. He hunted with the crossbow, which was an aristocratic weapon, uh, loved to hunt. He also loved to collect books. He was a very avid reader, book collector. He, he loved that. Now, in terms of his friendships, he was very close to his family and especially his younger brother, Edmund. Cranmer and Edmund were completely intertwined in their lives. Uh, when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, he made Edmund his Archdeacon of Canterbury, which was a, a position of the most sensitive uh, service to the Archbishop of Canterbury. All the secret problems, uh, the heretical problems, problems with administration, difficult clergy, Edmund handled everything and they both married. So they, they lived these private, covert, hidden lives, completely intertwined, children, all of that. And, and Cranmer, Cranmer had a sister who was a nun, Alice. He, um, once he became Archbishop of Canterbury, he had her leave her convent in Lincolnshire, change her habit, change her religious order, made her... Uh, the head of a house in Kent because he wanted her close. And she seems to have been a very vivacious person from the records. And so he was devoted to his family. Almost all of his sisters married. We don't know all of the names of their husbands, but many of them served Cranmer. So he had good, strong, tight friendships. And they, they didn't, they, none of them betrayed him. He could let loose his tears in the household, knowing that um, people would not go and reveal his sorrows. He, was a, he, he had good friends, very good friends in his family members for, for the ladies. He probably was attractive. We can't really know, but there is so much uncertainty about that first marriage. Because again, his mother sent him and Edmund to Cambridge. They were the spare heirs. They weren't necessary for the succession of the Cranmers. The Cranmers stayed in Aslockton for generations. And there they were in Cambridge. And probably she wanted them to be priests. And we don't quite know how he met the woman he married first, when he was still an undergraduate. And for the first time, I was able to establish when Cranmer was ordained, nobody had found the documentation. Nobody was looking in the right place. Everybody assumed that he was ordained in the Diocese of Ely and in the bishop's registers for Ely. There's no ordination records for Cranmer. Well, that's the people... People didn't know that uh, men were ordained at their birthplace. And since uh, Nottinghamshire is in the diocese, the, the province of York, he went up to York for uh, ordination in 1515. And uh, through the good graces of, of um, the Borthwick Institute of Historical Research, I found the ordination records for Cranmer and his brother, 1515. So, and, and, and now they've been digitized, anybody can look it up. But I had to cross the Atlantic around trip twice to find this. So he married as an undergraduate. How did this happen? The only thing I can do is suggest that there were a number of mysterious unions that took place in Tudor Cambridge. 
We don't know how it is that William Cecil, for example, married Mary Cheek, who was a sister of Sir John Cheek, eventually um, a a senior advisor during the reign of uh, Edward VI. Probably Cecil stayed in the house that Agnes Cheek ran. She had lodging, she offered food, she sold wine, and uh, Cecil and Mary fell in love. Something similar might have happened with Cranmer, quite unexpected. And he had no money. Under the terms of his father's will, he and Edmund were supposed to be given one pound a year, or 20 shillings, one pound a year as their annuity. Now, that's not enough to look. And we don't even know her name. Uh, And like everybody else, I spent quite a bit of time trying to discover her name. Joan Joan Black, Joan Brown, we don't know. And she died. There's a bit of hesitation in the records about when she died. Within a year of their marriage, she died in childbed. Did they anticipate their marriage? Did he get her in trouble? I I assume he loved her, even though it was very difficult. His life would have taken a different turn completely had he And maybe his mother would have rescued them. I have no idea. We can't know. And and then he was ordained. And um, so he entered the church and so did Edmund. And so it was was a past. He had a past. Some men did have pasts of this sort. You can point to others, uh, widowers who entered the priesthood, including Cambridge's first printer, um, entered the priesthood when he became a widower. Um, So it wasn't scandalous until later when he became Archbishop of Canterbury and all of his enemies said, oh, he had a past. Oh, he's been sexual. Virginity is, compare him with John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, a man of unblemished reputation. So Cranmer looked soiled in comparison. And they didn't even know that he had contracted a new marriage when he had been sent on embassy to the court of Charles V, the Holy Roman Empire. They didn't know that um, when he was there, they were holding a sessions of the imperial diet, the parliament for um, the, the empire. And he was taken to uh, sessions uh, of the imperial diet by the uh, great pastor of Nuremberg, Andreas Ossiander, a strong Lutheran. One of the people that Cranmer worked on very heavily to persuade him, because most Lutherans did not believe that Henry had any reason to to invalidate his marriage to Catherine, but Cranmer worked on Osiander very strongly to persuade him that Henry had a case. And Osiander had a niece, his wife's, well, of course, he was married. Osiander was married. He had a dy- he established a dynasty of married preachers. And um, there was the niece, Mar- Margaret Proy, and uh, in very short order, uh, an arrangement was made. Th- this is really a cataclysm for Cranmer because until then, it isn't clear that he had become a Lutheran, but he seems to have risen to the challenge of adapting himself to the kind of clergyman that Lutherans now presented. And he married Margaret. Now, we don't even know when Margaret came to England, under what circumstances. Again, Cranmer had really good friends, and they never revealed his secrets. And at some stage, she arrived. Eventually, they had two living children, another Thomas, and a daughter, and they seem to have been quite happy, though her life must have been very strange. Uh, We don't know whether she had learned Latin, uh, how they conversed. He was very good with languages. He picked up languages quickly. He he knew Italian. Of course, he knew Greek and Latin. So what language did they converse in? How openly did she live in England? I don't think she ever settled not even during the reign of Edward at Lambeth Palace. I don't think so, because there there was no precedent for this and nobody wanted a married archbishop. So she lived somewhere, uh, maybe with Edmund's wife. They raised their children together. 
but it was a very difficult time for her to be a foreign woman, alone, isolated, away from her husband for long stretches. It, her life is difficult to imagine. And she also did not create a precedent for archbishops' wives. Uh, that came much later. So she, she wasn't even allowed to create a position for herself or to be acknowledged in any way. Yeah, that must have been very challenging. And Susan, you mentioned earlier the Book of Common Prayer. So talk to us a little bit about Cranmer's contribution to this. Well, thank you. And you know, in preparing for this interview, it occurred to me all over again that I think the time is arriving for us to reconsider the making of the Book of Common Prayer. It's such an essential book. It defines the English church and other churches as well, denominations that have grown out of the English church, including, say, the Methodist uh, church. It is one of the great books. It really, in terms of the beauty of its language, it fits in with the King James Bible or indeed Shakespeare. Of course, it's got a different purpose. It's a liturgy. So you have to have a beautiful liturgy to celebrate all the important rites in, in a church. But it's, it's a supremely beautiful book and it's had enormous influence. But it does strike me that time has come to reconsider how it was made. And in this, I'm led by the anniversary we celebrated in 2011 of the making of the King James Bible. And that was a, what we had a, a conference. A lot of good thinking came out of that. Probably we need something else for the Book of Common Prayer because there's, there's a mystery about it. I, I think people are beginning to look at this carefully. Cranmer believed, as Erasmus did, that people should know what they believed in their own language. They should be able to worship in their own language, in fact. And Cranmer was intrigued when he arrived on the continent and he saw some of these emerging Protestant liturgies. He, he was absolutely fascinated. What they did, it was, it was so different. And in fact, every, every different locale was developing its own liturgies for a while. And Asiander too was part of this process. And so he, he was obsessed, absolutely obsessed with the Eucharist and how the Eucharist should be administered, the celebration, the Last Supper. He was obsessed by this. He collected books. He thought about it. He studied this intensively his whole life. And he began to translate in 1540s, during Henry's lifetime, translate portions of the liturgy or litanies into English. And, but he did not have a free hand to do what he wanted until the reign of Edward VI. And he didn't start necessarily with um, the liturgy. He started with homilies, which prepared speeches for men standing in the pulpit who may not have been writing their own sermons, um, but they, they had a text they could read. And a lot of them dealt with basics of theology, or they also dealt with um, how you were supposed to be obedient to the regime, useful stuff like that. And then once the, those were accepted and people did like the homilies, um, the ones that he prepared, then he moved on to the liturgy. But who is involved? How many people? We do have evidence that he kept sharing the various versions with continental divines, especially when refugees from Charles V's Holy Roman Empire, Cranmer invited to come to England. Martin Butzer from Strasbourg, for one, came and took up a chair at Cambridge, and they would go through the text again very carefully. But, but it, it must have been a larger effort. It wasn't just Cranmer writing. I think maybe Cheek had a role to play, Sir John Cheek and others. And I, I think it's time to unpack that again. But that, that would be, again, it's something that should have a huge conference and a huge set of essays to come out of it. And so that means that the wonderful thing about studying history is that we always have new questions. New questions mean that we need to search for new answers. And so it's really exciting. And we're living in a golden age of this kind of historical inquiry. So Edward VI, obviously, you mentioned he had a bit more of a free hand during Edward's reign, but unfortunately, Edward does not reign for very long. 
and he uh, his sister then comes to the throne, Mary the First. So what is life like for, for grandma during Mary's reign and what happens when she ascends the throne in, in 1553? Here is another terrible problem, which Cranmer couldn't solve. Not only did Edward's health fail, we think he had something like tuberculosis, we're not sure, but Edward became convinced that both of his sisters were ineligible for the throne, even though Henry, a law that was passed in 1544 and Henry's will stipulated that Mary and Elizabeth were both rehabilitated, that they both should follow in turn, should Edward not have children, And this was the law and Edward didn't like it, but Edward was not in a position. He wasn't, first of all, he wasn't old enough to make a legal will. Secondly, he couldn't overturn the law without calling parliament. Thirdly, he wasn't well enough to live to see this parliament. So what he did in the last weeks of his life is he called together a lot of people, Cranmer, but also the mayor and aldermen of London and showed them a document that said that his cousin, Protestant cousin, Lady Jane Grey should become queen, bypass both Mary and Elizabeth, and the crown should go to Jane. And he had to spend a lot of time persuading Cranmer to sign, because Cranmer knew the law. And I guess Cranmer was persuaded by the pathetic nature of Edward's appeal, or at least that's what he said later. But again, I suspect that Cranmer really did like power And he always felt that he had a right to it. And so uh, thinking about it, he decided to throw in his lot with Jane. So when Edward died, Cranmer escorted Jane into the tower to prepare for her coronation and began to hold uh, meetings of the Privy Council there, the cabinet meetings, getting ready. Queen Jane, she wasn't the nine days queen. She lasted 13 days because Mary knew her rights. Mary had very carefully avoided Edward's court, avoided capture, and moved uh, into Suffolk where she had uh, a base of power and a lot of supporters. And when she heard her brother died, she sent out letters saying that she was the queen and Jane was a usurper. And she was not happy when Cranmer wrote back to her. In essence, you know, Mary, uh, your, your, your parents had not been legitimately married. So sit down and shut up. It didn't work very well because Mary had a lot of backing and artillery and uh, she marched into London and um, took the throne. So uh, she became queen. Uh, Professor Andrew Pedigree has written about the eerie calm of those first few weeks when Mary was queen. What was she going to do? Who was she going to step on? And Cranmer had quite a bit of authority as Archbishop of Canterbury. And he could make a lot of trouble and he decided he was going to. And he got ready to do a a huge protest to prevent Mary from uh, making a rapprochement with the papacy, for undoing the Reformation, for returning England into the Roman Catholic fold, for undoing everything that her father and her brother had established in making them through Parliament, supreme heads of the English church. Cranmer was going to make a protest about all of that. And here, the circle of friendship finally broke down. Somebody leaked the draft of the protest, and he was arrested. And then he was put on trial with Lady Jane Grey and her husband. They were marched through the streets of London to Guildhall. They were tried. They were found guilty. They were traitors due to be executed. And that was the first condemnation that he received. And poor Lady Jane went to the block in the following year, 1554, and she was only 16. Susan, tell us a little bit about Cranmer's final days and his execution. I'd I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on his recantations as well. Eventually, he and the other bishops, Nicholas Ridley, who had been Bishop of London, and Hugh Latimer, who had a long time ago, under Henry VIII's reign, had been Bishop of Worcester, they were moved to Oxford. And they were moved there, first of all, to get them away from attention in London. But secondly, there were a number of doctrinal problems that had to be uh, sorted out for Mary's church. There had been enormous disruptions, not only during Henry's reign, but during Edward's especially, and 
uh, Ridley had helped to make some very substantial changes. And a lot of these things had to be put into context, argued about. And also Mary's supporters at Oxford wanted to hold Cranmer up as a terrible example of somebody who had betrayed the papacy, his points of origin, a good Orthodox thinking in Christian church, and somebody who had just been a complete failure, the architect of all of this, and he had to be humiliated. He and the others went through a series of trials, examinations, and eventually they were found guilty. And so Cranmer had his second condemnation, this time for heresy. Well, heresy is different than treason. Treason can be punished in a a variety of ways, but the way somebody of his stature would have been punished uh, would be by being beheaded, as Sir Thomas More and Fisher had been. A heresy is much more serious. And the penalty for that under the, under the laws that Mary reestablished was being burnt alive at a stake. And this gets very sad because Cranmer had been educated at Cambridge with Latimer. And I suspect that Latimer was one of his oldest friends. And he was forced to watch Latimer and Ridley's execution in October uh, 15, 55. He was forced to watch not only the, the death of people he had worked with, men he had worked with very closely his whole life, but with the understanding that he was being made to watch because this was going to happen to him too. So it is a form of torture. And after that, that happened in October, after that, the news came that really the Pope wanted him to come to Rome for a trial. And at this stage, uh, the new Pope Pius had fallen out with Mary and her chief advisor, Cardinal Thomas Poole, and they didn't want Cranmer to go to Rome. Uh, he would have shown them up. I, I couldn't talk about this in the book, but I, I really wonder what he would have done because Butzer had encouraged him to think about healing some of these terrible fissures that had broken uh, broken the Christian church apart. And Butzer had spent his whole life trying to heal some, make bridges between the Lutherans and the Catholic church and bring everybody back together again. Would Cranmer have made one last gamble to try to make everything right for everybody? You know, he might have done that. It's not impossible. He was very supple. And as a Nicodemite, he could have tried, but he wasn't allowed to go. And so as a result, he did something else. And it was probably strategic. He, at Christmas time, 1555, he was willing to go to mass. And then he told people he was willing to make his peace with the Roman Catholic Church. But here, Mary's people got really tough, and they demanded that he sign paperwork. And every single time he signed, the uh, bottom line, the, the, the fine print got tighter and tighter. He, he actually had to say at one point, Mary's parents had been validly married, but it got tighter and tighter and tighter. And what they really wanted is they wanted him to repudiate his thinking about uh, the liturgy, to come back to a position in the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Eucharist, that would have destroyed not only his legacy, but the validity of the church he had established. And he knew that the new bishop, or the resumed bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, was taking these papers that he signed and taking them to the printer and they were going to be printed and disseminated everywhere. They couldn't trust him to make an over recantation because he was too slippery, but they were going to take what he signed and disseminate it across England and Europe. And when he realized that, and when he realized that they were going to kill him, no matter what he did or said on the day of his execution, He had a prepared text that they were going to print that he was supposed to read, and he changed the ending and said he did not diverge from what he had taught under Henry VIII and Edward. He did not, he repudiated everything that he had signed, that he 
had signed with regret. He shouldn't have signed it. And in order to punish himself and for signing this, that when he, they burned him, he was going to hold his right hand in the flame and let that burn first. And he did. And this was a truly heroic gesture that nobody could gainsay. It's hard to make Cranmer out to be a martyr. In fact, the great martyrologist John Fox had terrible misgivings. But this was a statement that nobody could retract. They printed the recantations, they went nowhere because everybody knew what Cranmer had done. And also his brother had escaped to the continent, to Emden, and had begun to reprint some of Cranmer's work, representing himself, Edmund Cranmer, brother of the martyr. And so by that gesture, Cranmer's last message to posterity was that he had been a faithful Protestant and had built a church that was true. Susan, do we know what happened to his wife and children? You mentioned his brother's gone to the continent. Do we know what became of them? Yes. Um, for a while, I, I thought she had gone to the... Well, it was hard because they, they, he, he took effort to protect them. Their son did go to the continent. It sounds now as if Cranmer's wife was hid, hidden in plain sight in, in England. She married, remarried one of his friends, uh, the printer of the English Bible, Whitchurch. And that was a brief marriage. And then she made a disastrous third marriage to a man who abused her. Terrible. And she had to leave him. And uh, she went back to the printing community to Rainer Wolf, one of Cranmer's printers. Cranmer had, he loved books and he had a lot of printers as friends. And so at the end of her life, she had a series, she had in her safekeeping some rings that probably Henry VIII had given Cranmer as tokens or signs of favor. She had some things, but her life was very sad at the end, especially with that third marriage. Her son, Thomas Cranmer, lived into the 1590s. The wonderful thing about Edmund is Edmund's family, Edmund's family settled in Canterbury, and there were a lot of Cranmers there. And so he had family. They kept up. The younger Thomas Cramer was involved in lawsuits and problems, but we can find him in wills. And his sister married Thomas Norton, who became an important member of uh, the Elizabethan parliament. And they had no children. So there is no, no descendants of Thomas Cramer. But um, when she died, Norton married one of Edmund's daughters, and they had a big family. So there are people who are descendants of Edmund Cranmer. And I also occasionally come across somebody who will say that they're a descendant from one of Cranmer's sisters. And when I look up into it carefully, I think they are. So there are still people of Cranmer's family lineage who are with us today and their legacy goes on as a family. And speaking of legacies, just a final question for you, Susan. How does Cranmer's legacy live on, do you think, today within the Church of England? Well, I think he's a cultural titan. It is the Book of Common Prayer that makes that so important because it is the liturgy and I, th that makes, it, makes him essential. And I have met people who have said that when they have heard the, the prayer of humble access, of trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies, that the beauty of it, it speaks to them at such a deep level that people from outside the Episcopal Church, the English Church, they, they come inside. Um, he's a cultural titan. And in fact, it isn't important that we don't know his name because the words of the liturgy carry what he meant forward at a very deep level. It's the way people get to know God. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge. And you're obviously very passionate about this subject. And, and I really feel like I know him a lot better now. So, so thank you. There is one last thing we do, Susan, before I can let you run away on episodes of Talking Tudors. And this is just to get to know you a little bit better. So it's just 10 very quick questions. The first one, do you have a favorite period film or maybe a series? You mentioned one earlier on, a fantastic one that you enjoy watching. 
the Six Flags and Henry VIII were wonderful. Elizabeth R. was wonderful. A Man for All Seasons still stands up in a lot of ways. Um, I don't follow some of the more recent things, but I really did enjoy when Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies and Wolf Hall were was on Broadway. And I, I really enjoyed the performances. So um, I, I really liked that very much. And what's something that you love about where you live? Oh, well, I'm very fortunate. I have recently moved home to where uh, uh, my family on my mother's side have lived for nearly 400 years here in Connecticut. And in fact, my father's side, the family, which are are Ukrainian um, and from Poland, um, they've been here for a century too. And so I'm very happy here in this part of Connecticut. We have beautiful seasons, wonderful plant life, animal life. Um, I'm just very glad to be home and near the Housatonic River. I really am very happy here. And what is what was the last book that either you read or one you're currently reading or or one that you've recently purchased that you can share with us? There there are a couple. And one of them is completely off period. It's uh, Rebecca Solnit's Orville's Roses, which I think speaks to the time we're in now and the challenges. Because uh, George Orwell and what he wrote about representing truth is really important. It's sort of completely away from Cranmer and Cranmer's uh, ability. Okay. To, but, um, but we need that now. And also library by Andrew Pedigree and his colleague. It, it's got a lot of Tudor information in here, but really okay. the importance of books. And I can see some books in the, behind you there. We- <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still moving in and my bookcases are not up. That's okay. I'm the same. I've got piles of books everywhere. And um, speaking of books, which we love, what was a favorite childhood book for you? Uh, the Wizard of Oz and its sequel, The Marvelous Land of Oz. In fact, that one's even better than The Wizard. That was a wonderful book. Uh, the, the imagination that L. Frank Baum brought to a world that was becoming modern. It was inspiring. It made you think of possibilities that otherwise you wouldn't have dreamed of grasping. Um, I know that you're obviously very busy with your study and your research and everything, but do you have any hobbies? Too many. <laughs> Too many. In addition to collecting books and antiques, um, I'm a heavy gardener, um, or at least I hope to be again. And I, I keep thinking, oh, I should plant rifts of daffodils here and there when come fall. And um, so, yes, I, I have many hobbies. And Susan, do you have a favorite uh, destination, a holiday destination that you'd like to go to? Paris, Paris. Thinking about people that inspire you, who's a woman, and it can be a woman that's, you know, a contemporary woman or a woman from the past that inspires you and, and why? There are so many, it's hard to choose. Sojourner Truth as an American, standing up for freedom and uh, human rights late Madeleine Albright was terribly impressive. She had a, a brilliant mind. Uh, she was strong. There, there are so many. From the, from the past, I, I think somebody I've written about recently, Agnes Cheek, Sujan Cheek's mother. What a businesswoman she was in Cambridge in the 16th century with every hand raised against her. She had a fabulous house and uh, she started her family on the road to prosperity, uh, she was undefeated in life. You've given us some names there to to explore. So thank you. And the very last question I I promise is a Tudor takeaway. I ask all my guests for a suggestion for something for our listeners to explore after the episode. Sometimes people suggest a book or a website to look at or uh, even a film to watch or a song to listen to. Do you have a final Tudor takeaway for us? I do, and I've struggled with this because, again, we are living in a golden age. But at the moment, and by the time this is broadcast, it it won't be available so much anymore. Um, There is an exhibition at the Pierpont Morgan Library on Hans Holbein and the the character of portraiture. It was previously at the Getty Museum in California. And there's, there's a catalog. But there are many, many wonderful books about Hans Holbein. And I would say if you want to know something about the Tudor court intimately, any of the wonderful studies of Hans Holbein 
would be a wonderful entry because his understanding of how to portray the human soul, I think only Hans Memling was better than Holbein. But Holbein has given us the entire Tudor court in a way that um, makes them all live for us and always will. Brilliant takeaway. I totally agree with you. And Susan, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk tutors with us. It has been truly illuminating. Thank you so much. Well, I am grateful to you. This is a wonderful podcast. Um, I'm grateful to you and for increasing the opportunities for people to learn. This is a really important service that you're providing. And I thank you so much for a thoughtful discussion. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music